All right, a uh, little exercise here. Um, how many, show of hands, uh, don't be bashful. Uh, how many would see yourself as you are a good citizen? As you just kind of consider, raise your hands. Oh, come on, like only a handful? Be like, are you a good citizen or are you not a good citizen? Raise your hand. All right, put your hands down, prideful people. Um, <clears throat> if, this is going to be some aerobic exercise here, so um, if you have your driver's license, because uh, if you don't have your driver's license, you shouldn't be driving, um, if you have your driver's license and you were driving this week and you broke the speed limit at least once, if you text message while you were driving or you did not put your seatbelt on once, so broke the speed limit just one time, uh, texted or you did not click it, go ahead and stand up, please. All right. All right, keep standing, keep standing. If uh, at some point uh, you, if at some point, please stand, if you disrespected, dishonored, complained, or grumbled in your heart, towards someone who had a position of authority over you, whether it's someone in the civil government or just maybe your boss, if you're in the airport this week, maybe a TSA agent, one of those. Um, please stand if you complained, grumbled in your heart towards them or verbally. Go ahead and please stand. Now, to everyone who is sitting, if you are uh, lying right now, go ahead and please stand. <laughs> So welcome to Genesis. We are a bunch of law-breaking citizens of the United States. I'm glad you're here. Go ahead and sit down. <clears throat> now, my uh, point in all of that is not to point out that we are uh, a bunch of lawbreakers, but the reality is we break laws every single day. Uh, but I think most of us would view ourselves as relatively good citizens. And I think when you hear that question, you think, well, I didn't kill anyone. Uh, therefore, I'm a good citizen, or I didn't rob a bank this week, uh, so therefore, I'm a good citizen. But we overlook the other laws that we just kind of deem as, well, it's not really that important. Uh, if I'm going 40 and a 35, uh, you know, that's okay. Um, well, today, the text that we're looking at, uh, really the challenge or the heart behind the text is that if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, uh, you are called to be not just a good citizen, but a godly citizen. And uh, what Paul does for us is he walks through what it means to be a, a good citizen, a godly citizen in the country, in our context here in the United States of where we live. Now, it might seem odd, but like, why does this matter if you are a good citizen? Like, isn't the heart like we're supposed to be good Christians, that we follow, you know, Christ and we're obedient to the things of God and there's a divorce here between, you know, the things of faith and spirituality and, and the things of how I live in a secular world. And Paul, over the past few weeks, has been painting a portrait of, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have been impacted and transformed by the mercies of God. Well, your relationship with God matters, uh, meaning you will live your life as a living sacrifice um, in relationship with God. How you view yourself, uh, you will view yourself, as Scripture says, with sober judgment. You won't be drunk on yourself. Uh, it also talks about how we are to have a sincere or a genuine and unhypocritical love for those uh, that are around us, specifically uh, in the church. And then last week, we looked at um, uh, how do you love, sincerely, genuinely 
love those who come against you, those who persecute you, those who seek to hurt you. Um, and all of this has been under the banner of how we live matters to God. And because of God's mercies in our life, it is transforming relationship with him, relationship with ourselves, relationship with others. And then today, Paul is uh, hitting home on, and it should transform how we relate with uh, those who have positions of authority, specifically the government, civil authorities. But it's not just limited to authority if you're the president or a senator or the governor. It's anyone who has a position of authority. So it could be your boss of how you relate with, how you think about, how you treat uh, the person who has a position of authority over you, that matters to God a lot. And if you're a Christian, how and the mercies of God have impacted you, well, it should impact how you relate with those who have authority. Now, when I moved, um, I moved to Boston, this is my seventh summer uh, here in Boston. My wife and I moved here from Chicago. And um, I thought that Chicago was, relatively speaking, a, a politically charged climate. So in Chicago, when you're in the city and you're talking about politics, you just have to be careful of who you said you voted for, who you like or who you don't like, because it's bound to cause an issue. Well, I moved to Boston seven years ago, and I, my eyes were kind of open to, oh, this is what a politically charged climate actually looks like. Um, now, politics matter wherever you live. It doesn't matter if you're in Ohio or California or Texas or Chicago. But specifically, here in Boston, it's very different culture as it relates to government and politics. And you just mention those things and hair on people's arms stand up of like, well, what are you going to say? Be careful what you say because you might offend me. And you can't have a conversation about government and politics without it, potentially at least, having some type of divisive issue. Now, I wanted to ask a couple questions. If you realized that the government that is in place, and I'm specifically I'm not talking about just the governments all over the world. We live here in America, so I'm focusing for today on our government, the United States government. So if you realized <clears throat> that the government that is in place was established by God, that this is God's government, he's established it, he has set it up, would that change at all how you view it, understand it, or even speak about government? If you thought, wow, this is God's thing, he ordained it. He established it. It's his government. So would that at all impact how you view it? Think about it. Or if you realize that government officials, civil authorities from the president to senators to TSA uh, workers, uh, if you realize that they were deacons of God, that they were actually God's deacons, and deacons means servant. They were servants of God. Would that alter how you see them? Would you look at maybe the president? Would you look at our, our, gov our governor or our senators or any civil authorities? Would you look at them with different eyes and like, wow, that's a deacon of God. That's God's servant that God has put them in that place. I don't think we, when we think about government, we're not sitting there thinking about, wow, God's doing a great job how he's orchestrated this government. And I'm so thankful that God has just raised up some really qualified, morally character uh, you know, deacons, servants uh, to serve the people. I think when we think of government and government officials, it's moral corruption in inept institution that's void of God. Now, that's not what the Bible actually says about government. 
the Bible has a very different view or perspective on government, and it also makes really clear in the passage we're going to look at of how we're supposed to think about, understand, and relate with government and relate with specifically uh, civic authorities or people who have a position of authority uh, over us. Now, before I read uh, the few verses that we're going to uh, cover today in Romans 13, um, I wanted to ask at least a question that was curious to me. Why on earth is Paul talking about the government right now? If you've been tracking along, Romans 1 through 11 was this great theological discourse of how we can have a right relationship with God and what God has done to secure that relationship through his son, Jesus. Phenomenal 11 chapters of Romans. And then Romans 12, Paul walks into, in light of all that God has done, this is what your life is supposed to look like in chapter 12. And now we hit chapter 13, pay your taxes. Submit to the authorities. Like, Paul, did you just have like a mental lapse? Like, how could you go from all of this, this great stuff, to talking about the government and how we're to submit to the government and how we're to pay our taxes? What on earth is going on in this context that Paul would even address that? Well, uh, I'm not an expert on church history, but I've definitely studied first century Christianity quite a bit. And the thing that you need to know about first century Christianity is it was nothing like what we live in today. Uh, meaning, if you are a first century follower of Jesus, uh, you were persecuted, you were ridiculed. Uh, there were certain restrictions and rights that you did not have just because you were a Christian. If you claimed to be a follower, persecuted to the point of death, made to be a spectacle in the arena, uh, and certain rights that other people had, you did not have. Why? Well, because of your faith. Now, I wanted to ask <clears throat> this question. Imagine if in this country <clears throat> you lost your rights, your rights as an American citizen, that you couldn't do certain things. And the reason that you lost your rights as an American citizen um, was because you're a Christian. Imagine what that would be like. Or imagine if because of, in this country, that you were being persecuted to the point of death. Meaning we lived in a, a, a situation where the government said, if you claim Christ, then you go to prison, or you are sentenced, that's your death sentence if you claim Christ. Or in, imagine if in this country, you were just ridiculed, made to be a spectacle of because of your Christian faith. Now, I think most of us can picture that would be really challenging. Well, let me add this part on. Would you be okay paying taxes to the same government that was using its monies to persecute you, to take away your rights? Would you be okay giving your hard-earned money over to a government that was just bent on your destruction? Would you be okay saying, I'm going to give my respect, I'm going to give my honor uh, to those who are in positions of authority, even though those who are in positions of authority are persecuting me, uh, are, are harassing me, or I'm um, losing my rights because of my faith? I think most of us would say, yeah, that would actually be pretty challenging. That would be a tough situation, and this is the situation that first, uh, first century Christians were living in. Uh, and so when you hear this first verse, I want you, as best you can, hear it through the ears of how hard must it have been for these first century Christians to hear what Paul is exhorting them, commanding them to do. Romans 13, 1 says this, <clears throat> 
Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority that exists have been established by God. Imagine hearing those words for the very first time in light of the situation that you were living in. No rights, persecuted to the point of death, taxed heavily, and Paul's admonishment, exhortation to you is, everyone must submit. Wouldn't you at all at least be thinking, Paul, I'm sorry, what did you say? You want us to do what? You want us to submit to who? Are you joking? Are you kidding? You want us to submit to these people who are Christian killers? And then imagine as you're hearing the verse go on, and Paul says, uh, you know, uh, no authority except that which God has established. Do you mean to say, Paul, are you communicating to us, Paul, that this government that is killing us right now, persecuting us, harassing us, unduly taxing us, are you saying, Paul, that this government was actually established by God, that God is behind all of this? Like, imagine, if you can, how difficult that would have been for you to hear this one command. Everyone must submit. Now, I've got the implications from this are just phenomenal. The questions that you could spend months and months asking so many questions, and I'm just highlighting two. Submit. Does this mean we always submit or just some of the time? What about if it's you know, a godless leader, a godless government. Are we supposed to submit even then? Are we su- supposed to submit even when there's just much corruption? Are we supposed to submit even then? Or the question of when Paul says there's no authority except that which uh, has been established. It, does that mean Nero's in, in first century Rome, his government, his power was established by God? Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein? Like, is Paul saying that all governments, all authorities have been established by God? Well, we're going to answer a couple of these questions. I'm going to start with uh, the first one where it says, submit, everyone must submit himself to the governing uh, authorities. Now, if someone tells you to submit, what's your first reaction? Back off, dude. Don't tell me what to do. Right? I mean, generally speaking, if we're in a position of someone is making us submit or someone is telling us something to do and they have a position of authority, isn't our natural instinct that pride kind of swells up and like, I'm not going to listen to what you say? Or even if I have to just because it's my job, well, outwardly I'll do it, but inwardly I'm not paying attention to you. It's kind of like the parent who has the child and, uh, you know, I'm sitting in, sitting in front of you, but I'm standing in my heart. Like there's just something about us that when we even hear the word submit, we just have a hard time. It doesn't matter if it's the government. We have a hard time submitting our lives uh, to God. And so what does it actually mean to submit? So when Paul says submit himself to the governing authorities, there's certainly an aspect of we're called to be obedient. So when you think of submission, there's an aspect of submission and obedience that go hand in hand. But what Paul is talking about here is when we are called to submit, we are called to recognize that we stand underneath someone else's authority, that someone has been given by God authority over us, and we stand underneath that person. 
Now, typically when you hear the word submission, it's usually a matter of equality, that you're supposed to submit to that person because they're greater, they're, they're better, they're more gifted, they're more talented. It's a, it's a question of equality. And it has nothing to do with equality. It has to do with roles that God has given certain people, and God has not given certain people uh, certain roles as well. So when you hear this word uh, submit, it's you stand underneath someone else's authority. Um, example, if you are uh, driving and in your rearview mirror, you see flashing lights, what do you do? Well, general rule of thumb, I would encourage this, is uh, you pull over, you stop. Okay, so if you see flashing lights in the form of a cop car, a police car behind you, well, that means you've done something and the officer is wanting to stop you. But why do you stop? Like, why don't you just keep going? Why don't you pull an O.J. Simpson and just go on for miles and miles and miles? You'd be famous and make TV. Well, you don't do that because you recognize that a police officer has a position of authority over you, and he has the right to stop you for, you know, whatever reason he's stopping, whether it was speeding or blowing through a stop sign. Now, imagine if, you know, it's a nice day and your windows are rolled down and, you know, you're driving along and you hear some guy yelling out his window, hey, pull over, pull over. And he's got a flashlight and he's kind of, you know, doing this thing outside. Would you pull over? Probably not. Because the dude who's just yelling pull over with a flashlight, well, he doesn't have a position or a role of authority over you. So you probably call the real policeman and say, I've got a whack job who's behind me with a flashlight screaming, will you please come help? Okay, so when we hear submit, well, we submit to authorities because they have that position. And as we'll talk about in a second, it's a God-given role that they play. And we don't play that role. And so our role is to stand underneath their authority. Now, practically speaking, what does it look like to submit to a governing authority? What does it look like? And I'm going to give you a biblical example, and I'm going to give you a real personal example. A biblical example, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, when he was born, uh, he had Mary and Joseph. And if you remember at the time, if you read the story in Luke chapter 2, Joseph and Mary were called to come to their birthplace. Well, their birthplace, the reason that they were being called to come to their birthplace was so that they could register for the census. And the only reason that they were registering for the census is so that Caesar Augustus could tax them, right? They had to travel roughly 90 miles in the late stages of pregnancy. They had to make the decision of, do we obey this command to come back and be part of a census where we're going to be taxed even harder because of we're Jewish and we're persecuted. Do I travel at least about a three to four month journey with my wife 90 miles just so I can be taxed heavier? Well, as we see with Mary and Joseph, they submitted to the governing authorities. Was it right? No. But was that what the governing authorities called for was they were taking a census so they could tax people. And whether it was Just or unjust, this is a clear example of Mary and Joseph submitting to the governing authorities. Personal example, if you were here, excuse me, about two years ago, man, we had a bear of a time getting into this building. Uh, I thought it was as simple as, you know, we pay our rent, 
make the building look a little bit nice. But then we were introduced to the fire marshal, and the fire marshal had a few things to say to us about, well, hey, before you can get occupancy in this place, you need to do this, this, and this. And I remember like, wow, okay, I didn't know that. We'll do this, this, and this. He came back, and he said, hey, things look great. Now you just need to go down to the, the building department, and you need to get this next set of paperwork. I'm like, well, okay, you didn't tell me that before, so now I go down to the building department, and the building inspector looks at me and says, well, do you have a building permit? And I said, I'm not building anything, so no, I don't have a building permit. He's like, I need an occupancy permit, not a building permit. He's like, oh, if you want an occupancy, you need to get a building permit. He's like, maybe you didn't hear me the first time. I'm not building anything. Painting a wall doesn't count as building. He said, oh, but if you want occupancy, you have to get a building permit. I'm like, all right, well, what's the process to get a building permit? Oh, well, you have to get plans drawn up for the building. So I grab a napkin, and I'm like, well, here you go. Here's what the building looks like. And uh, he says, well, actually, you have to get uh, an officially autographed stamp by a legit architect. And I'm like, really? But maybe you didn't hear me. We're not building anything. Like, we've, we cleaned. You know, we mopped the floors, but we're not building. He said, sir, if you want occupancy, you need a building permit. To get a building permit, you need... Uh, so we spent about $1,500 to go get an architect to come draw up plans for the building. So I go and turn it in, and... He says, oh, well, this looks great. Now we need to get uh, your plumbing permit, and we need to get this other inspector to go down this list. Now, you'll forever notice this when you drive into uh, our building, but I remember going to meeting with the plumbing inspector, and uh, before we can get the gas turned on and all of that kind of stuff, uh, he has to inspect a bunch of different things. And so we've got heating units, three separate heating units, and there's one heating unit that's uh, on the far side of this building. So he's inspecting it, and he takes out his measuring tape, and, um, and he's like, hey, this is six inches off. And I'm like, well, great, that's pretty close. Uh, <laughs> we don't have a problem. It's only six inches. He's like, no, 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 you didn't understand. You're six inches too close to the edge of the building, so you either have to pick this thing up and move it, uh, or you have to build a guardrail along the side of the building. And I'm like, you're kidding, right? You, really? Six inches? We're going to have to either pick this entire unit up, which would be thousands of dollars, or we're going to have to build a guardrail. So we had to hire some engineer to come in and build a guardrail. Every time I come into Genesis, I see that guardrail. I'm like, oh, God bless that inspector. <laughs> and it actually, the list goes on and on and on. And I won't bore you with all of the rest of the details, but... At every step of the way when we were trying to get occupancy to meet in this place and be able to call and say, hey, this is where our church gathers, uh, I personally was confronted with, are you going to take shortcuts, Michael? Are you going to do stuff to kind of expedite the, expedite the process, and are you going to you know, kind of fudge a few things here or fudge a few things there? And the thing that God just kept convicting, Michael, do it the right way. Do the right way. It doesn't make sense to you. You don't need to understand it, but this is how zoning works. This is how the building permit process goes. This is how occupancy goes. All of that kind of stuff. Every step of the way. To the point of, how many people were here for the very first two gatherings? Raise your hand if you were here back in the day. You remember where we met? We met in the parking lot. Do you know why we met in the parking lot? Because we could not get on the building permits uh, calendar in time uh, in a timely way so he could come inspect the building. All was done. He just needed to come inspect it. He's like, yeah, I'm about two weeks out before I can come. 
I'm like, please, sir, we, you know, our church is now starting to gather. It's getting cold. And he's like, well, there's nothing I can do. And I was like, so you really want us to start just meeting in the parking lot? And he's like, sir, listen, let me be honest with you. I'm not going to send the police to your building at 1030 on a Sunday morning to make sure that you're not doing it. So if you want to meet there, I could care less. And I was like, but we're not supposed to be there. And he's like, you're not supposed to be there until I come and inspect it. Took him two weeks, and we met outside one Sunday. It was raining. We had these goofy-looking tents set up, and it was just, it makes for a great story. But honestly, at the time, it was so frustrating. And I kept coming back to, are we going to be a church that does it right? Are we going to be a church that submits to whatever the process, whatever the procedure is? And our heart was, let's do it right. Let's be over the top. If we need to do something, spend all this money to six inches and then let's just do it. Let's be a blessing to the city that we're coming in rather than fight them every step of the way for six inches here. Our water temperature, oh, it's supposed to be 114. It tested like 111. And I'm like, we're off by three degrees and you're going to make us buy this whole little unit to get the water hotter? He's like, yes, I am. I'm like, oh, wow, Lord's got a special place somewhere in eternity for you. We live in a, a culture that just tells us to kind of bend the rules, break the rules uh, if you can without necessarily getting caught. And in a very practical way, we do this without reporting certain income. Well, the government doesn't know I made that. That was a gift or that was for this or for that. So I'm totally fine. They don't need to know that. We do it with you know, finding what we would call legal loopholes to just avoid doing certain things where we know it's not right, but we found a loophole out. Paul says, and this is God's word to us, to Christians, is submit to the authorities. And you have to ask, well, why am I called to submit? Why am, even if at great cost, even at great inconvenience, even at great frustration? And the answer always comes back to, well, because it's honoring to God. It is absolutely honoring to God to do it the right way all of the time, not just some of the time. You honor God when you don't fudge your income taxes or you don't, you know, or you report all of it. That is honoring to God. And getting this building, we did the best we could to do everything we could to be above board so that we would honor God and hopefully in the process, honor those who had authority over us. Isn't it a bit silly for me to say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor at this church, and I'm having these interactions with the building inspector, and I'm lying, I'm deceiving, I'm manipulating. What kind of message does that send to the one in authority? If I want to send the message, if my life has been impacted, transformed by the mercies of God, and here's a practical example of how, I'll do whatever you require of me, sir. Why? Because God calls me to submit to you. Now, It's a pretty radical call from Paul to submit to the authorities. Now, I'll answer another question of, are there times where we are free from submitting to the authorities, free from obeying the governing authorities? Is there ever a time where I can say, no, I can't do that? Sir, six inches, that's just too much. I can't do that. That goes against me. Is there a time where we say no? And my answer is yes. There are times where we say no, that we do not submit to the governing authorities. And I'll give you two instances of where I feel the Bible clearly teaches that we have good conscience before God bless you to uh, disobey the governing authorities. And 
Number one is, if asked ever to violate a direct command of God. If there was ever a scenario in our government where they were calling for you to, to uh, violate a direct command from God in his word, uh, I would say no to whatever, that, uh, whatever I was being asked to do if it would go against uh, God's clear uh, command. A great example of this is found in Acts chapter 5. Excuse me, Acts chapter 5, where the apostles are preaching the gospels, the governing authority said, stop talking about Jesus. You're causing an uproar in the city. Stop talking. They put him in prison. They let him out and said, don't talk anymore about Jesus. And so this is what the apostles' response was. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Now, before you ever throw out that card of we must obey God rather than men, you better be certain that that is a straight biblical commandment, not just your preference, not just to get out of a situation of, well, I don't really feel like doing that anyway, so I'll find a verse. And you comb scripture and you're like, well, that's kind of a loose very loose interpretation of that verse, but I got a verse now. If there is ever a time where you're commanded to directly violate God's word, I would say from God's word, we're commanded to obey God, not man. And I'll give you a second instance of going against conscience if asked to do an immoral, unethical, or a sinful act. If there was a time where you're put in a situation where you were asked to commit a moral sin, uh, an ethical sin, uh, then I would say that is a time where I say, no, I cannot go against my conscience and sin against God or sin in whatever the situation might be. There's plenty of examples in scripture. If you remember the story of the Exodus in Exodus chapter one, uh, the Hebrew women were commanded by the Pharaoh of, you need to kill all the male children. And the maids or the, the Hebrew women um, you know, said, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll definitely obey that commandment. But when it came time to actually do that, uh, they refused to kill the children. Why? Well, in good conscience, it would be a gross moral sin to kill an infant, to kill a baby. And so they said, we cannot do that. And God honored that decision to not uh, respect or obey the Pharaoh, but God honored their decision to um, uh, obey God's word. Uh, this is a tough situation, but I was thinking about it this week reading uh, on my newspaper. It's called ESPN. Um, Andy Pettit, uh, who I don't know personally, he uh, was a former pitcher for the, that team uh, somewhere in New York. And um, from what I hear, he's a pretty strong Christian. And uh, right now, he's uh, in, man, the storm of his life because he's being asked to testify uh, against one of his best friends uh, about lying to Congress, Roger Clemens. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, wow, what a tough situation this guy is in. He's already told the truth and said he's confessed to certain things that he's done. I heard it. He told me that, and I'm sticking by my word. Well, now he's having to come back to Congress, and he's going through this trial, and if convicted, he's going to get prison. So Andy is in this situation. Can you imagine if someone came to him and said, hey, Andy, just let this go. You need to lie to the governing authorities so Roger doesn't get in trouble. Like, you're his best friend. You can't do that to him. If I was Andy in that situation, or if I was counseling him, 
I'd say, Andy, you need to honor God first and tell the truth, the absolute truth. He made his decisions on what he did, and you need to be honest and truthful. Now, as I've already said, as it relates to matters of conscience, before you throw the card of, I'm not going to obey the laws, uh, I'm going to obey my, my conscience, uh, the Spirit of God, you better make sure that your conscience is just not looking for uh, a time of convenience. You better make sure that your conscience lines up clearly with Scripture. So my point is we don't disobey or we don't refuse to submit because we disagree or because it will be inconvenient, it will make us suffer or be of a great cost to us. That is never grounds for, well, you know, civil disobedience. The Christians who were living in Rome, man, they were getting hammered. And Paul was telling them, submit to the governing authorities. If they persecute you, they have to give an account to God. But so do you. Submit to the governing authorities. Now, why do we submit to the government? And I think Paul's ultimate answer is because in doing so, we are ultimately submitting to the one who has established the government. He says again in verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the government authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I'm going to come back and answer my second question was, are we talking about even like the really evil governments? Did God establish those, the, the government of Nero, of Stalin, of Mussolini, of Hitler, of Napoleon, Saddam Hussein? Was God, did he orchestrate, did, did God establish that government? And you know what the answer is? Absolutely. Yes, he did. Now, I don't say that with a smile on my face. I say that with absolutely God did that. But I also say it with, I don't know why God set Hitler up in place full well or full knowledge of what Hitler would do. But I can tell you, I find greater comfort in knowing that God is the one who establishes all authorities, whether governing or whether your boss God has established all those authorities. Can you imagine if we had to say, well, actually, God's not behind that. God didn't do that at all. God is not sovereign. God's not supreme. God's not reigning. This is just all by random that he just happened to get raised up. That would be, I don't know what I would do with that one. But one of the things that scripture makes pretty clear is, uh, just read one verse from the Old Testament in, in Daniel. If you're familiar with the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, He's a pretty wicked guy, pretty wicked king, pretty ruthless ruler. Uh, but he says this, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to all discerning. Southern Sudan was just established as a new nation, I think just yesterday or on Friday. Okay, that didn't like happen, and God was like, oh my goodness, where did that come from? How, how did these people just establish themselves? That is directly from God. Now, I don't have an answer to the tough question of, well, what about the Stalins and the Mussolinis and the Husseins and the Hitlers? All I can know is that God is the one who established all of those things, and in that, God is accomplishing his perfect sovereign purposes or his will. Now, that's a, I just have to leave it at that because I don't know why God did that, but I know that God is accomplishing his plan even through evil rulers, even through evil governments. 
Well, in the next few verses that uh, we're going to look at, Paul explains what the role and responsibility of the government is to have. Like, what should the government actually look like? And it says this in chapter 13, verse 2 through 5. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Well, then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant, or God's deacon, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Now, as I'm reading these verses, it's Paul is describing the state as it is to function under God. This is how it is established by God and how it is supposed to operate but obviously, clearly, that is not necessarily how it always does. Why? Because men are sinful. Let me ask this question. If you're not a boss, but you want to be a boss, and you're like working in your job, and you got the right to be boss for a day, what would you do as boss for a day? Do you want to know why sometimes governments get evil? Because how you answer that question is, well, I would do what I want to do. I would do what's best for me. I would do what I'm thinking of I'd want to do if I ever got the chance. Because when we get thrust into positions of power or leadership or authority, our first thought is, how can I serve all of these people? Our first thought is, how can I press forth with my agenda? How can I accomplish what I want accomplished? Because now I've got the title boss. Therefore, I'll do it. So not necessarily, this is not how the government always works because of sin. Now, as you read these verses, much could be said about these verses. What do you make of the Revolutionary War? Were they right to rebel against England's sovereign rule? I've read much that there's a case that, no, that was not right. And I've read just as much literature that says, with biblical support, no, that was right. What do you make of capital punishment? It clearly says in, in these verses, the state, the government, does not bear the sword for, for no reason, that God has given them the sword. And by the way, we're not just talking about a, a metaphor of a toy. We're talking about the sword for punishment to the point of death. So what do you do with capital punishment? Is that biblical or is it not biblical? As I've been studying and just reading uh, and sitting with this passage uh, throughout the week, uh, I've realized that there's absolutely no way that I could possibly cover everything about our government and how our government should operate, and how we should be in relationship to our government. There's too many questions to cover. And I don't want to do what Paul is not intending to be done. And what I mean by that, Paul is not seeking to answer every possible question as it relates to the role of government in our culture. He's not trying to do that in the least bit. Rather, Paul is making a simple point. The government is a deacon. The government is a servant of God whose main purpose is to do good, to maintain justice, and to punish wrongdoers. That's it. If you want to know what the government is for, it's God's servant, God's deacon, to administer justice, to punish wrongdoers, and to do good by the people. Does the government do that role perfectly? 
<laughs> That's where you guys can shout and be like, well, no, of course not. They don't do it perfectly. But just because they don't do their God-given role perfectly, is that ever an excuse for us not to do what we know God has called us to do? This is where I fear what happens is, well, the government's not doing and operating as the government should. Therefore, I will not be the citizen that would respect, that would honor uh, the government that's been established by God. If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, if the mercies of God have transformed your life, it should, it must transform how we relate to the government. Namely, that we would submit. Namely, that we would honor. Namely, that we would respect. Although the government may be flawed, even corrupt, the worst government is still better than no government at all. Can you imagine what life would be like if we didn't have any government? If there was no government in place? Can you imagine dialing 911 and, and there was just no one on the other end of the phone? Can you imagine if there was not, thankfully now in place, TSA agents? Now, we can be critical and say, you know, let the 90-year-old woman and her depends, please let her go through. But is there anyone who's thankful that there's not been any terrorist attacks on, on, uh, on airplanes in, since September, uh, since 9-11? Like, can you imagine if there was no government in place, there would be no one to restrain the evil that would happen. It would be absolute anarchy. Israel is so familiar with this because there was a time where they did not have government. They did not have a king. And one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament is in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Can you imagine living in a culture where everyone just did as he saw fit and it was left unchecked? It would be absolutely horrific. Like how St. Augustine said, government is a necessary evil that is necessary because of evil. One of the greatest benefits of actually doing what is right, of being a good, godly citizen, of submitting to the government, is that you're going to be a person who lives free of fear. If you honor what God is calling you to do here, to submit to the government, to honor, to respect, you will be a person who lives without fear of being punished. Now, when you drive by a police officer, what, what happens to your heart rate? It typically usually goes up. Why? Because you're like, oh, goodness, how fast was I just going? Did I just blow through something? Did, am I texting? Did my seatbelt on? As soon as you see an authoritative figure, the heart starts going of, oh, gosh, what did I do wrong? Isn't it amazing? This hasn't happened but once in 13 years of being married, but driving down with Kyla a few weeks back, and she's, Michael, there's a cop. And I'm like, okay, because I knew I wasn't going that fast. I don't know if I was not breaking the speed limit or not, but I knew that I was going actually pretty slow. And it felt so good being able to drive by a police officer and do this. How you doing? Look at me. I'm being a good citizen. You got nothing on me. Paul says, what a great benefit of doing right. We live without fear. 
Now, this is the freedom that we are to have, but this freedom eludes many people because many people, including Christians, live with the mindset of, how far can I go? How far can I push it? How far can I stretch this? And if that's your mindset and how you live in relationship to the authorities of those over you, you know what you'll always be thinking of? I wonder if I'm going to get caught. I'm wondering if they're going to find out that I lied here, fudged here, deceived here, manipulated here. And that is not a way to live, especially as a Christian, in light of God's mercies. Now, we are not to do right just because we don't want to pay the consequences of doing wrong, but we are to do right or to do good as a matter of conscience, meaning we know that submitting, it's good to God. It honors God. And I honestly, to go back to the story I shared with you before of trying to get in this building, I hope looking back that the city was blessed by the interactions they had with our church because we sought to honor them in doing it well and doing it right. I love uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, and it says this, uh, also, this is written to a people who are in exile, and they're in exile because King Nebuchadnezzar had come in and captured the Israelites and had them uh, in bondage, in slavery. Okay, in exile, this is the word they get from God. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I love how Jeremiah says, uh, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I'm going to finish up very quickly in uh, verse 6 and 7 of Romans, uh, where Paul gives some very practical exhortations of what an attitude of submission looks like. And he says in 6 and 7, This is also why you are to pay taxes. For the authorities uh, are God's servants or God's deacons who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenues, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. One of the things I love about Paul is he's got the courage to tell the people of God what God wants them to do, even though Paul knows full well that the people of God will absolutely despise this. How do you tell a persecuted people to pay their taxes to a government that's using the money to persecute them? But this was God's desire. Honor those that I have placed in position of authority. And Paul just affirms what Jesus said. Jesus, are we to pay taxes? Yeah, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, when you pay your taxes, you do it with an attitude uh, reflective of one who has received the mercies of God, or do you do it as one with reflecting one who is just bitter and frustrated? I'm only writing this, sending this check and filing because I don't want to get in trouble with the IRS. Or is it done with an attitude of, I'm thankful for the government that we have in place? Are they perfect? No. But I'm thankful that God has established them. And I write this check to pay my taxes in gratitude towards God for the authorities that he's placed, his servants, his deacons. There's a big difference of writing a check with, off with a prayer, and there's a big difference of writing a check with bitterness and frustration. And if we're going to honor the authorities that God has established in place, we do the former, uh, not the latter. First century Christians were being crushed, but Paul says, pay your taxes. 
Now, what does it look like to respect and honor those in position of authority, namely civil authority, say anyone actually in authority over you, your boss, the TSA agent, the governor, the senator, the president? What does it look like to honor and respect them? Now, this will be a convicting question uh, to some, maybe to many, but have you ever said anything ill will towards President Obama? Have you ever said anything verbalized or maybe just in your heart of just grumbling and complaining towards the president? He's not doing this. He's not doing this. He's evil here. He's sinful here. He's this and this and this. It saddens me personally as a Christian when I hear people whining and complaining and grumbling against the man that God has established in a position of authority. Is Obama perfect? No. But am I called to honor and to respect him? Yes. Now, this is the tough thing. Well, Michael, he's not doing honorable things. He's not doing respectable things, whether it's President Obama or anyone else, for that matter, in a position of authority. Now, if that is your mindset and you say, well, if he would do honorable things, respectable things, then I would give him the honor he's due. If you think that, you need to understand what you've just revealed about yourself. You're a merit person, not a grace person. And if you are familiar with the gospel, it's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of merit. I cannot respond to the governing authorities with an attitude of merit. If you do this, then I will do that. Be respectable, you'll get respect. Do honorable things, I will give you honor. Well, you're a merit-based Christian if that's your attitude or approach to the governing authorities. Our attitude is God's established him. Is he perfect? No. But are we to pray for him? Absolutely. Are we to pray for those who have positions of power or authority over us? Yeah, why? Because God's put that individual there. So let this be a challenge that don't be the person who's just whining and complaining and grumbling against anyone and everyone in authority, whether it's the president, whether it's the TSA officials. They're in that position of authority for a reason. They're not perfect, but it's a grace system. We respect and honor the role that they play in the culture in which we live. Finish with uh, this one quote. I was really um, blessed by it. It's, it's a quote by a man named Justin the Martyr. And just so you know, Martyr is not his last name. It's a title he received because he was killed for his faith uh, by the Roman government in about 160 AD. Justin Martyr said this, Everywhere, we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things, we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that with your kingly power, you may be, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. And then they killed him. I just love his heart and his attitude. Well, because of Jesus, uh, because of the gospel, because of God's mercy to me, I will be the man or the woman that honors, submits, respects those that God has placed clearly in a position of authority uh, over me. It's a pretty unique city uh, we live in, uh, Boston, greater Boston area. As I was thinking about um, the place that God has uniquely placed this church, he's uniquely placed you, 
you and I have a unique opportunity to influence people for the gospel in the way we talk about government and politics. Anytime you are talking to someone about government and politics, uh, rather than having the attitude of this person is just lame and this person is evil, this person is this, the attitude can be, you know what, I'm thankful that God's raised up this person I'm actually praying for. Him. Uh, they're not perfect, but neither am I. That's God's man for this time and this place. And my job is to honor and to respect him. You want to quiet a conversation real quick? You want to end a quarrel? Is actually I've chosen to submit myself to the governing authorities. But you're a Republican. Uh, yeah, but no, no, I'm a Christian. Well, you're a Democrat. Well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. You're an independent. No, I'm a Christian. I trust that God has raised these men, these women up and given them this position of authority. My job is to submit. My job is to honor. My job is to respect. My job is to give to them what is due, whether it's taxes or respect. Why can we do this? Well, because God's mercy is at work in my life, transforming me from a merit person to a grace person. Uh, Real practically, when you uh, begin a work week uh, tomorrow, I know not everyone in here is a boss, um, but uh, if you are a person who is under authority, uh, I would love for you this week to go to work, because uh, the chances that you're going to meet President Obama this week is, is slim. Um, and so in a real practical way, I wanted to challenge you this week, whoever holds that position of power or authority, know that they are there because God has placed them there. And maybe you might see them as evil, as ruthless, as corrupt, as a deceiver, as a manipulator. You know what I say to that? I say, praise God, he's put you in their life. How is that person ever going to see grace unless they see it in you? So when you go to work this week, go with the attitude of, I'm going to honor my boss. I'm going to honor and respect him or her. And know that if you happen to be the boss, if you happen to be the one calling the shots, know that you're not there because you're some great person and you're just better than everyone else. Know that you have been established there by God. And God who easily put you there could easily take you away there. Respect the role that God has given you to love and to serve, to care for, to protect those that are underneath your care. Father God, thank you for a great section here in Romans 13. Uh, God, it's challenging on so many fronts, uh, but I give thanks that uh, Paul, led by your spirit, uh, uh, penned what we have in, in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. It's absolutely phenomenal, uh, the challenge that he gave to the first century Christians and the challenge ultimately that it is to us.